It's the Coat St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service and Podcast for Thursday, June 11, 2020. On today's episode, librarian Stephen Tomlinson is back to give a brief history of drive-in movie theaters. It was an adventure for kids who might, of course, not even be interested in the movie itself and would, in any case, often fall asleep before the beginning of the second feature. In fact, in the 1950s, it wouldn't have been uncommon to see advertisements for drive-ins that highlighted this novel concept of going to a movie without having to hire a babysitter. Michael Karen is here. He's the author of Churchill at Munich, which is an alternate history novel of how the world would have been different had it been Churchill and not Chamberlain who had met Hitler at Munich. He'll be here to talk about the book and the parallels he sees between that time and today. The United States today happens to be the place where the most dangerous attack on democracy is being waged. We can confidently call it the most dangerous, not just because the U.S. is an exemplar of the rule of law, but because the attack is coming from within. On this day in history, on June 11, 1963, Vivian Malone and James Hood arrived at the University of Alabama to register for summer classes. But George Wallace, the governor of their state, was blocking the door alongside two state police officers. Wallace had made a campaign promise to prevent the desegregation of schools in Alabama. It took National Guard troops and an order from President Kennedy to get Wallace to leave and to allow Vivian Malone and James Hood to enter the building and register for classes. That evening, President Kennedy addressed the country. Here are some of his remarks. Good evening, my fellow citizens. This afternoon, following a series of threats and defiant statements, the presence of Alabama National Guardsmen was required on the University of Alabama to carry out the final and unequivocal order of the United States District Court of the Northern District of Alabama. That order called for the admission of two clearly qualified young Alabama residents who happened to have been born Negro. That they were admitted peacefully on the campus is due in good measure to the conduct of the students of the University of Alabama who met uh, their responsibilities in a uh, constructive way. I hope that every American, regardless of where he lives, will stop and examine his conscience about this and other related incidents. This nation was founded by men of many nations and backgrounds. It was founded on the principle that all men are created equal and that the rights of every man are diminished when the rights of one man are threatened. Today we are committed to a worldwide struggle to promote and protect the rights of all who wish to be free. And when Americans are sent to Vietnam or West Berlin, we do not ask for whites only. It ought to be possible, therefore, for American students of any color to attend any public institution they select without having to be backed up by troops. Now, there are two postscripts to the story worth mentioning. The first is that James Hood, one of the two students, he returned to the University of Alabama in 1995, this time without incident, and this time to complete a doctorate degree. Vivian Malone went on to a long career in public service. And in 1996, she traveled to Montgomery, Alabama to see George Wallace. He had picked her as the first recipient of an award named in the memory of his late wife, 
an award that recognizes women who made major improvements in the state. Wallace was 77 years old by then, and he had long ago renounced segregation. Vivian Malone and George Wallace met privately before the ceremony, and Wallace apologized to her. And when she was asked about the encounter, she said, There's no question Wallace and I will be remembered for the stand in the schoolhouse door. There's no way you can overcome that. But the best that can happen at this point is to say it was a mistake. We all make mistakes. Here's Stephen Tomlinson to talk about drive-in movies. Hi, everyone. This is Stephen Tomlinson of the Code St. Luke Public Library, and today I will be presenting a brief history of the drive-in movie theater. Many of us who have been to the drive-in as children will forever remember clearly looking up at that big movie screen and experiencing something bigger than life itself. It was a summertime ritual, and it almost didn't matter what was playing. For a child like me in the 1970s, the movie was secondary to the thrill of the drive-in experience itself, which was a uniquely different one from that of an indoor movie theater. Today, drive-ins are harder to find, but are making a modest comeback thanks to COVID-19. With regular movie theaters still closed, the drive-in experience promises watching a movie from the safety of your vehicle, and the novelty for many of doing so under the stars. Under the stars, what could be better than that? Drive-in movie theaters were most popular in the 1950s and the 1960s, when there were thousands of them across North America. The middle class was then at its most affluent, and seemingly every family could afford a car. And as such, a kind of car culture developed, with people trying to do everything in their cars, including eating in their cars, and of course, watching movies from their cars. It's been 80 years since a New Jersey auto parts store manager named Richard Hollingshead hit upon the idea of the drive-in movie theater itself. The wonder of his concept, of course, as with all the world's greatest, most inspired, most life-affirming inventions, is that, despite how obvious it seems now, no one had thought of it before. Or if anyone had thought of it before, they hadn't bothered to get a patent on the idea as Hollingshead did on May 16, 1933. In any case, no one had had the wherewithal to actually build and then open one, as he and three other investors did when they cut the ribbon on the world's first drive-in movie theater in Camden, New Jersey, on June 6, 1933. Admission per screening was 25 cents a car, plus 25 cents for each person in that car, Total attendance for three screenings on opening night was said to be about 600 cars. And I think one of the reasons that drive-ins would later emphasize the family experience was so they could charge by the car load. Canada's first drive-in was the Skyway Drive-In in Stony Creek, Ontario. Comparatively speaking, we were very late to the game. It opened in 1946. But of course, Canada would always have a problematic relationship with drive-ins because of the weather. By the end of World War II, there were about a hundred drive-ins in the United States. Most of them were built on farmland, all of them invariably miles away from the city center. When drive-ins first started, they didn't have distinive names. They were just called drive-in theater. 
But I think they really take off after 1945 because of a convergence of factors. Car sales, for one, had skyrocketed with full employment, and cars became somewhat representative of middle-class status, you know, of having made it. And so drive-ins would provide an opportunity of a kind to show off that new car. Also, the period immediately after the war is the start of the baby boom generation, and so the combination of new kids and new cars would create a special experience that the entire family could share at the drive-in. Another thing that happened, as in Canada, and especially with Code St. Luke itself, though I don't think there was ever a drive-in movie theater here, was that with newfound affluence, home ownership became increasingly possible, and so families moved to the new suburbs. And as drive-ins grew up around family-oriented suburbs, or vice versa, they would function for much of their existence as convenient, family-oriented establishments. Also, there really wasn't much else to do in the suburbs, as, for example, shopping malls had not yet become ubiquitous. And another thing was that television was not yet big either. So both drive-ins and indoor movie theaters really did not have much competition for entertainment dollars and leisure time until well into the 1950s. Close by and easily accessible, from what were often newly built highways, you didn't even need a babysitter to go to the drive-in. And if the children were young enough, you might even take them in their pajamas. It was an adventure for kids, who might, of course, not even be interested in the movie itself, and would, in any case, often fall asleep before the beginning of the second feature. In fact, in the 1950s, it wouldn't have been uncommon to see advertisements for drive-ins that highlighted this novel concept of going to a movie without having to hire a babysitter. And so the drive-in experience was always very different from attending an indoor movie theater. For example, at the height of the Hollywood studio system in the 1930s and 1940s, going to the movies, and the studios owned their theaters, by the way, was almost like going to the opera. Indeed, the indoor theater was often designed as a kind of movie palace, which people would often dress formally to attend though that idea would, of course, gradually wither away. Unlike this concept of the movie Palace and its formality, the drive-in experience itself was deliberately designed from the outset to be far more relaxed. For example, there was always a nice aspect of privacy present in the drive-in experience that was not at all available to audiences at the indoor theater. The experience was or could be somewhat social at a drive-in, as we'll see, like living in a little pop-up neighborhood of a kind for a few hours. But unlike indoor theaters, you could speak openly in your car and not bother a stranger, for example, as you would in an indoor theater. Of course, sometimes the experience of the drive-in might be a little too private and a little too relaxed. And so, by the 1950s especially, they became increasingly popular with young lovers who might not have anywhere else to go. And to combat such wantonness, early drive-in theaters would often hire private security, believe it or not to keep an eye on things in order to enforce that 
quote-unquote family experience that they wished to promote. And because they catered to families, they invariably had playgrounds, usually right in front of and below the huge screen, of which there was only one in this period, in part to encourage families to come early and to spend money at the snack bar. But the playgrounds weren't the only added attractions. Some drive-ins had bumper cars, some had go-kart tracks, others even had miniature golf courses and train rides for the kids. This was meant to be a complete entertainment experience. Every drive-in screening would advertise trailers before the movie, encouraging patrons to visit the snack bar during the intermission between movies, or at any time during the movie itself. Indeed, there was often a countdown clock. That's what they were called, countdown clocks. To count down the time you had to go to the washroom and or stock up on your refreshments, so that you might get back to your car and not miss any of the movie to come, which was something that, of course, indoor theaters never had. But as with today's surviving indoor movie theaters, concessions were always the most significant source of income for the owners of the drive-ins. And for attendees, having a meal was often entirely a part of the experience of going to the drive-in. That was something you just didn't get in an indoor movie theater, because, of course, you were meant to be at a drive-in for several hours watching two movies with a lengthy intermission in between them. Of course, everyone who ever attended a drive-in in the distant past will remember the old speaker boxes that would hang on car windows. They were the ever-present icon of the drive-in theater, right up to the early 1980s, when they were replaced with AM radio signals. You know, after paying, you would drive to an open space, facing the screen, and adjacent to which there would be a pole with that small wired speaker box that you would then detach and hang from your car window. But in reality, the sound produced by these speakers was very tinny and generally quite poor. And they were hard for the drive-ins to maintain, too, because inevitably the wiring would go bad and they'd have to dig up the ground, or even worse, the asphalt, in order to fix them. And that, that was a lot of work. There was a lot of vandalism, too. And often, people would even drive off forgetting that the speakers were still attached to the windows, with some obvious damaging results to both speaker and automobile. Almost all drive-ins in Canada were wired for heaters, which you would pick up at the concession stand and plug into the base of the speaker pole. Some drive-ins in Canada remained open until November, but most closed in the weeks following Labor Day weekend, usually in late September or early October, and then would reopen in April or May of the following year. Originally, the drive-in screens were made of wood, which was coated with a highly reflective paint to better reflect the image being projected usually from the same building that held the snack bar. But these screens were subject to such things as termites and high winds, and eventually would be replaced by 
corrugated metal structures. But there were also structures made of concrete blocks, which would of course stand the test of time only to be torn down in subsequent decades for economic reasons. At least until 1953 or so, with the introduction of widescreen cinematography, the screens would be the standard 133 to 1 ratio, the size of which might be 2,500 square feet. Something else also changed after the war, and that is with the growth of the suburbs in tandem with the proliferation of this new means of seeing a movie, drive-ins couldn't just be called drive-in theater anymore. They had to have distinctive, if mostly generic, names, the most common of which were Sunset Drive-In, Starlight Drive-In, Stardust Drive-In, Sky View, Skylight, a whole series of variations on the word sky or star. Moonlight Drive-In, that, that was another popular one. And then with these at least somewhat distinctive names came screen structures with elaborate facade murals on the back of them, which were often lit up by neon that you could spot, and quite deliberately so, from a mile away. The number of new drive-ins skyrocketed between 1946 and 1948. In 1949, there were 1,000 of them. In 1951, 2,000 drive-ins. By August 1952, drive-in movie theater attendance had actually exceeded the attendance for indoor movie theaters. And when you think about it, it kind of makes sense because drive-ins, of course, had a much greater capacity. Larger ones would hold between usually 2,500 to 3,000 cars, but it was not uncommon for drive-in theaters to have a capacity even greater than that. There was a drive-in outside of Milwaukee in the 1950s that had a 10,000 car capacity. At the height of their popularity in 1958, there were more than 5,000 drive-ins in the United States alone, after which the number begins to decrease gradually. Today, there are just a few hundred. But in the 1950s, drive-ins were so popular that on weekends, it was not uncommon for traffic to be backed up, as invariably, there would only be one ticket booth. Throughout the 1950s, there were frequent what were called buck nights, or their monetary equivalents in later years. You know, all your car could hold for one dollar or some such similar price. And sneaking into a drive-in, that, that would almost be a rite of passage for many young people. You know, usually in the trunk of the automobile, if you can imagine such a thing. Something else that significantly separated indoor from outdoor movie theaters was that most of the movie studios had owned their own exhibition chain of indoor movie theaters. But whereas every city had had a Paramount theater, there was probably never a drive-in movie theater called the Paramount. And that's because the drive-in theater industry was comprised largely of independent operators 
and a few regional chains that the big studios didn't want to give their new films to. And that's why drive-ins always played so many B movies and second-run A movies. The traditional studios had had a stranglehold on the exhibition of new films until well into the 1950s. And because drive-ins could not get new movies until they were at least four to six months old, they would often show low-budget independent films and would usually run not just double bills, but even triple bills on Friday and Saturday nights that might go on from dusk until dawn. But by the late 1950s, the competition from television would begin the long, slow decline of the drive-in, as at-home family viewing proved more convenient and cheaper than a trip to the drive-in, or to an indoor movie theater for that matter. Now, by the early 1960s, with families now more often staying at home to watch TV together, the drive-in really starts to become the domain of teenagers who want to get out of the house and away from mom and dad. And of course, the movies themselves begin to reflect the interests and tastes of this teenager youth market. I mean, for example, who can forget the classic, I was a teenage werewolf. This idea of the teenager really begins as a marketing concept in this period of the affluent 1950s and 60s. For the first time in history, teenagers really didn't have to spend all of their free time working outside of school, and so a kind of distinct and popular teen culture emerged from which the drive-in was an important hangout. And as teenagers now have access to cars and expendable income, their main pursuit, like most teenagers in any age, is fun. And the drive-in, especially in the suburbs, was the place to go. And it even became a kind of ritual to do so. But why the drive-in? Almost like the contemporary shopping mall, teenagers might not have had other public spaces open to them in which to congregate and that were not under direct adult supervision, at least not ostensibly. You know, a lot of North American baby boomer memories of the drive-in are not necessarily of the movies themselves, the popcorn, or even the attachable speakers. For many, it was a place to fall in love. Teenagers had the environment of being in a car where it could be private, or at least semi-private, which of course facilitates romance. And for that reason, we still have the popular conception of the drive-in as being a place for young people to make out. I suppose that was always true, but never more so than in the 1960s, when drive-ins began to become known as passion pits, quote-unquote, where the human interaction from all the cars around you might be more entertaining than the very film itself. Still, as teenagers and young people become the dominant demographic at drive-ins in this period, the movies themselves continue to reflect their interests to an ever greater degree. First come the so-called beach blanket musicals uh, with Annette Funicello and Frankie Avalon. Uh, then the grade B horror movies, which really become a constant throughout the decade. Horror films, of course, would have had the added benefit of facilitating closer contact among a young couple, as, at least in theory, each takes shelter in the other's arms. 
but uh, invariably a little bit campy, a little bit cheesy. These aren't the films that the big studios were making. The low-budget production company American International Pictures, AIP, really catered their product to drive-ins. AIP movies were not considered respectable by older audiences, but they were fun, and sometimes quite good, as with the Edgar Allan Poe adaptations directed by Roger Corman. But it was really the aura, especially with the horror movies, of something almost forbidden that made them so popular among youthful audiences. And that probably is still true today. But what these movies lacked in sophistication and budgets, they often more than made up for with audacious concepts. By the end of the 1960s, the countercultural rebellion and all the new liberties associated with it had spilled over into mass entertainment, especially with the relaxation of censorship laws, and which we see at the drive-in with the emergence of biker films like The Wild Angels and other non-mainstream genres. This was the time of don't trust anyone over 30, right? Topical issues like sex, drugs, and rock and roll were extremely popular, the movie Easy Rider being the paradigm here as drive-ins were by now catering to not just a youthful audience, but an edgier one as well. All fairly tame by today's standards, but they did give drive-ins a very bad reputation among an older family values generation, which ultimately proved completely detrimental for drive-in business, as they were now not attracting families at all. By the 1970s, movies were not only becoming edgier, but more violent too. Also, nudity was coming in, as was coarse language, and a general increase in more adult subject matter and sexual content. Another contributing factor in the decline of the drive-in was the energy crisis of the 1970s, in which the rise in gas prices led to a demand for smaller, more compact and gas-efficient cars. But there's just something not quite right about going to the drive-in in a compact car. I mean, think about it. You really need to be able to stretch out and remain comfortable, right, for at least a few hours. So the declining economy of the 1970s really hit the drive-ins hard. Great, often vulgar neon lighting, which had always been a part of the drive-in iconography, was becoming a problem. Uh, one of which was that it's very expensive to keep up. Another thing is that city ordinances had begun to forbid or even outlaw the use of neon lighting as urban expansion encroached on what were once rural or semi-rural establishments. They were just too bright. Many drive-ins facing hard times in the 1970s, like indoor movie theaters in urban centers, resorted to pornography to try and survive, but unsuccessfully in the long run, and certainly not without sullying the image of the drive-in theater, which had by then already become somewhat disreputable among middle-class audiences for their association with rebellious, youth-oriented movies. And so, ironically, by the late 1970s, drive-ins had become the exact opposite of the family-friendly establishments that they had started out as. They were now in terminal decline, becoming run down, particularly those built in the 1940s and 50s. And they looked it, 
especially after the neon came down. After all, we're talking about an aging infrastructure that was by now, in many cases, 30 to 40 years old. And old speakers that needed constant maintenance. And in any case, sounded very bad. And that was an issue, especially after Star Wars came out in 1977, marking the advent of the blockbuster movie, which invariably had great sound. Another issue was the proliferation of shopping malls with the flight of retail stores to the suburbs, which also helped depress the drive-ins as the inevitable multiplex movie screens that accompanied them now provided direct competition. Drive-ins, in turn, began mimicking the indoor shopping mall multiplex by adding multiple screens of their own. And any drive-in that survives today usually has three to five screens. Cable TV and the VCR further depressed the market in the 1980s, as they did for movie theaters in general, but especially for drive-ins, because you now had an easy way to see a movie after it left the theater that had not been available before this. But inevitably, they just weren't cool anymore, with thousands having closed by the early or mid-1980s. Today, there are about 30 or 40 drive-ins left in all of Canada, almost half of them in Ontario. In Quebec, there are still a few, with the one in St. Eustache being perhaps the most notable, with five screens, room for 2,500 cars, and movies in English on Thursday nights. Many of the still-existing drive-ins are run by community groups, and they have weekend screenings only. But even when commercially run, as with St. Eustache, drive-ins have almost entirely returned to the family-oriented experience of the 1950s, with only mainstream movies being presented on screen. You know, I suppose if we think of the drive-in today, mostly we think of it as a cultural icon of the 1950s and perhaps 1960s. If we see a drive-in depicted in the movies today, it's almost a surefire sign that the movie is set in that past. But because of COVID-19, we're also seeing something of a likely short-term re-emergence of the drive-in. Because with indoor cinema still closed, it gives people something to do whether the family or a couple together under the stars, watching an outdoor movie. And hey, what could be better than that right now? Thank you very much. This has been Stephen Tomlinson of the Code St. Luke Public Library. I hope you've enjoyed this brief history of the drive-in movie theater and that you will join me tomorrow with Lockdown Viewing for movie and TV recommendations of what to watch and where to watch it. Take care. And bye-bye for now. Hello, my name is Michael Karen. I'm the author of a novel entitled Churchill at Munich. Before I begin, I want to thank the Cote St. Luke Library for this opportunity to speak to you. No municipality, quite possibly anywhere in the world, is better served by its local library than is Cote St. Luke by the Eleanor London Public Library. It is a superb institution, and I am proud to be associated with it. My novel, Churchill at Munich, is a work of alternate history. 
It imagines Winston Churchill becoming Prime Minister of the United Kingdom two years before he actually did. Accordingly, in my novel, this iron-willed man, Churchill, rather than the spineless appeaser, Neville Chamberlain, represents Britain at the Munich Conference. All of subsequent history is thereby changed. I will, in the course of this talk, say a few words more about my novel, but my main thrust will be to argue that we are living through a time, these early decades of the 21st century, when the world could use another Winston Churchill, and that, in fact, we are desperately in need of another Winston Churchill. Regrettably, we most likely are not going to see such a person emerge. Given the largely spineless state of democratic leadership in far too many countries, in the absence of an actual Churchill, we should make a point of remembering what he did and what he stood for. I want to begin with a few words, a very few words, from the writings of the great man himself. Inevitably, I found it difficult to choose just one apt quotation from the riches he left us. Churchill's literary legacy is immense. It exceeds everything written by Dickens and Shakespeare combined. Churchill's first book was published in 1898, when he was 24. He won the Nobel Prize for Literature when he was 75. The full collection of his work totals 43 volumes. The gem of a quotation that I finally settled upon to introduce my presentation is a very short, very Churchillian piece of advice. It's a mere eight words from the more than six million published words he left us. But I think these eight words answer perceptively to the situation we're facing on the international stage and equally to the situation we're facing within the Republic to our South. Churchill once said, and I quote, when you are going through hell, keep going, end quote. I believe that is a perfectly fitting prescription for lovers of democracy these days. The hell that I am referring to, which the world is enduring even as we sit here relatively insulated in our sensible and peaceable Canada, is the same type of hell that Winston Churchill identified and condemned all through the 1930s, namely dictatorship, the rising tide of authoritarianism, the erosion of constitutional values, the undermining of democracy, even in the world's greatest democracies. Whether or not it's widely understood, a blaze has started in the theater of global culture. Invoking the memory of Churchill and his lonely fight during the 1930s is a way to begin shouting fire. Constitutional democracy, one of the basic pillars of Western civilization, is experiencing a crisis. The crisis consists of an attack from both within and without upon a range of our political norms and customs. After centuries of the existence of those norms, we may have been too rash in assuming their invulnerability. The norms have not been broken, but they are bending. Events are increasingly demonstrating that we can't take them for granted. As we are sadly learning, no norms can be deemed permanent by virtue of their integrity alone. They demand never-ending vigilance. At times like these, they require spirited defense. To understand Winston Churchill's significance in this context, we should take a detour back in time to a pivotal moment 80 years ago, during the summer of 1940. At no point in the history of Western civilization 
that our norms and customs require a more spirited defense than during that summer in that year. The defense was offered up by Winston Churchill. The story has been told in hundreds of books. Most recently, it was told in the movie Darkest Hour. The movie was a good thing, a very good thing. But how many people, and more specifically, how many Americans, saw the movie and understood the ongoing significance of its message? I fear fewer, far fewer than we would hope. It's June 1940. It is only a month since Churchill became prime minister. France has fallen to the Germans. Western Europe lies subjugated under the boot of Hitler. Nazi military might appears invincible. At this juncture, there is zero prospect that Hitler's victories can be overturned. What is his next step? His obvious next target? The British Isles. It was at this precise moment in his long career that Churchill made his greatest contribution to humanity. His leadership was still fragile because it was barely weeks old. He was still widely detested within his own party. Only the English Channel stood between his nearly defenseless country and the mightiest military the world had ever seen. Voices within his own cabinet, powerful voices, demanded talks with Germany. Hitler at this point was not adverse to an accommodation with Britain because he was already master of Europe. He could set the terms. Hitler could exact Germany's full measure of revenge for its 1918 defeat without firing another shot. Consider the burden of decision on Britain's prime minister. The pressure on him was beyond imagining. On the one hand, his country was caught at the edge of an abyss. On the other hand, he could pull his country back from the precipice if he agreed to negotiate. The continent was lost, but Britain could be spared. The pivotal moment had come. Fortunately for Britain, providentially for the future of Europe, Churchill knew the nature of the enemy better than anyone. He recognized the long-term stakes involved. He rejected all pressure to talk peace with the Nazi barbarian. That single act of defiance will glow forever on the pages of history. Here was principled leadership upheld under the most dire of circumstances. Britain could not have won the war alone, but what Churchill did in the summer of 1940 was ensure that Western civilization would not lose the war to Nazi barbarism. That ends our detour to 1940, though I will come back to its lessons and the character of the man who taught the lessons. Let's return to the present era and the attack being waged on the foundations of constitutional democracy. It's not an attack waged by tanks and planes, but by a stealthy rot, eating at norms we have long respected. Nor is it an attack fought out in the open. It has not been declared by the attackers, and in large measure not even perceived by the victims. Rather, it's an attack being conducted under the smokescreen of legitimacy, with the complicity of certain sections of the media, with bogus slogans and outright lies. The result is a quickening corrosion of institutions we have long regarded as impregnable. In 1992, a writer by the name of Francis Fukuyama made himself famous by writing a book called The End of History. What was his rationale? The Soviet Union had collapsed the year before. Communism was suddenly a dinosaur. The Cold War was over. The values of the West had triumphed. 
It looked like clear sailing for human rights, representative government, market economies, international harmony, etc., etc., all based on a common vision. Mr. Fukuyami's declaration was, of course, an exercise in hyperbole, but it made a certain kind of sense. For a brief, bright, shining moment, we could dream that the values of liberal democracy would never again suffer a serious challenge. It was the end of history, except, of course, it wasn't. Look at where we are today in Russia, in China, in Turkey, in Hungary, in Poland, in Venezuela, in the Philippines. Nationalist movements, even in the great democracy, the great democracies of France and Britain, threaten those countries' traditional values. In two of the three most militarily powerful countries of the world, Russia and China, liberal democracy remains a pipe dream. Both of those countries, which together comprise almost a third of the world's population, are led by men who can only be described as autocrats. And both Russia and China make no secret of their expansionist tendencies. China into the Pacific, Russia glowering over the Soviet Union's former satellites. Worldwide, then, the fight continues between closed regimes and open societies. For a few years, there was hope for Russia. Remember Boris Yeltsin? Boris Yeltsin once visited a grocery store in a small town in Texas. He came away sick at heart for what communism had done to his country. He saw in that grocery store what a free economy could offer to ordinary people. It painted an unmistakable picture for him of the disastrous failing of central planning when compared to a market economy. It also taught him how monstrously ill-conceived was the former Soviet Union's Cold War with the West. Yeltsin became president of Russia in July 1991. In August of that year, he stood on a tank and defied the coup attempt by Soviet hardliners to resurrect the good old days of Brezhnev and Kosygin. Before the end of that tumultuous year, the Soviet Union dissolved. So there was hope. This was, an, well, this was when Mr. Fukuyama's book came out. Tragically, however, Yeltsin, during his eight years in power, proved to be a blundering oaf. And he turned corrupt. Maybe, maybe, if he had had the brains and determination of his successor, he might have been able to begin changing the deep-rooted culture of his country, a culture steeped in autocracy. He had the chance at least to set it on a democratic course. Yeltsin's successor, Vladimir Putin, the former KGB agent, whose fondest wish is to resurrect the Soviet Union, unfortunately does have brains and determination. Putin has used all his murderous trickery to restore the closed regime at home and derail open societies abroad. At home, he assassinates opponents, orchestrates sham elections, and extends his own term limit. Abroad, his greatest trick was to help defeat a woman whom he despised for having encouraged the Russian opposition movement. As the evidence has long since shown, Putin played a consequential part in the defeat of Hillary Clinton. Which brings us to the United States, the leading light in the world for constitutional democracy, the place that is most pivotal to the struggle between the open society 
and the authoritarian impulse. Appallingly, tragically, bizarrely, the United States today happens to be the place where the most dangerous attack on democracy is being waged. We can confidently call it the most dangerous, not just because the US is an exemplar of the rule of law, but because the attack is coming from within, not only from within the country, but from within its highest office, an oval office that has until recently been dedicated to preserving, protecting and defending the values of Western civilization. What document in the world provides a better shield for the values of liberal democracy than the Constitution of the United States? To what extent then is it unpardonable that the man who most recently swore a sacred oath to uphold that document and who was given tremendous power to do so is instead betraying his oath and employing his power to subvert the document's ideals? George Washington refused to be a monarch. He preferred to be a temporary president. He thereby helped shape what America is, namely a place where the person holding the highest office in the land has limited powers. George Washington thereby contributed to the making of a country of laws, not of men, a country of institutions, not of demagogues. Dozens upon dozens of statements and actions of the current president have illustrated his wish to erase Washington's foundational commitment and have signaled his repudiation of basic principles of American democracy. I will choose just one to represent the many dozens. In early June of last year, a memo written by the president's lawyers became public. In it, the president claimed that he could use, at will, the agencies of public law enforcement to initiate or terminate any investigation. This was a declaration of unlimited personal power. The day after the memo <clears throat> became public, the president tweeted that he had an absolute right to pardon himself if ever law enforcement convicted him of anything. He was effectively saying that he was above the law, that the law could not touch him, that he embodied the law. L'état c'est moi. Not even Richard Nixon had gone that far. This was a grave moment. The president was claiming the power of a genuine monarch. Genuine monarchs have absolute power. There are no limits to their power. What was the response at this grave moment of elected Republicans in the Congress, all of whom had sworn an oath to the Constitution of the United States? The vast majority of them said nothing. Either they failed to recognize an attack on the conceptual foundation of their country, or they consciously refused to repel it. You may have noticed that I haven't let pass my lips the name of the current president of the United States. It isn't only because I consider it sacrilegious to juxtapose in any way that name with the name of Winston Churchill. And it's not only because I regard the use of the word president before the word spelled T-R-E. U-M-P as a marker of eternal shame on the history of the United States. No, it's because whenever I hear those two words together, President, T-R-U-M-P, I tend to lose faith in evolution itself. What does all this have to do with my book? The parallels are ominous. 
Throughout the 1930s, Winston Churchill opposed the appeasement of Nazi Germany. He stood against his own party. He spoke against the wind of popular opinion. We know that, in the end, it was the very appeasement that he decried which enabled Germany to launch the Second World War. The high-water mark of appeasement came in September of 1938 at the Munich Conference. Neville Chamberlain and his French counterpart betrayed reason, resolve, and courage when they sold democratic Czechoslovakia down the river to Hitler. They traded the Sudetenland, a strategically indispensable part of Czechoslovakia, home to the vast Skoda works and a network of fortifications for a worthless piece of paper that Chamberlain waved about, claiming it represented, quote, peace for our time, end quote. Churchill said of Munich to the lily-livered appeaser Chamberlain, quote, you had a choice between war and dishonor. You chose dishonor and you will have war, end quote. And so it was. Hitler eventually simply tore up that piece of paper. Nazi Germany immediately annexed the Sudetenland. Then within six months of Munich, occupied all of Czechoslovakia. Seven months later, Hitler invaded Poland. The equivalent to the Sudetenland in the 21st century is a place called Crimea. The equivalent to Czechoslovakia is a country called Ukraine. Adolf Hitler claimed it was his responsibility to protect the ethnic German population in the Sudetenland. And he called Czechoslovakia a mongrel, artificial nation that did not deserve to exist. Vladimir Putin has claimed that his responsibility is to protect the ethnic Russian population of Crimea, and he regards Ukraine as a subordinate country that must remain within the orbit of Russia. I will come back to the illegal annexation of Crimea in a few moments and discuss it within a particular context. Remember, the democratic powers had stood by throughout the 1930s, appeasing Hitler's every transgression and aggression, giving him bloodless victory after bloodless victory. They thereby deprived his generals and the Prussian old guard in Germany, who despised Hitler, who considered him Bohemian trash of any compelling reason to depose him. Appeasement acts like a vestibule to catastrophe. The name we most often attach to the appeasement of the 1930s is Neville Chamberlain. Eighty years after the sellout in Munich, in the year 2020, does a Chamberlain type of man exist and hold a critical place in the councils of the world? I would argue in the affirmative, and that the initials of a man's name are D.J.T. Furthermore, I would argue that the modern counterpart of Chamberlain is infinitely more dangerous than the original, because the new Chamberlain is a premeditated one, a deliberate, purposeful Chamberlain. The original Chamberlain may have been pathetic, gutless, and foolish, but his motives at least were positive. Neville Chamberlain truly did believe that his abandonment of the Sudetenland would advance the cause of peace. Conversely, when we examine the words and actions of the current American president, we can't pretend that his motives are anything but either imbecilic, seditious, or suborned. I say suborned, because what more could Vladimir Putin demand of a puppet in the Oval Office 
than what the current president has already delivered. Look at what he has delivered within the United States itself. Racial division and cultural conflict. Political polarization the like of which we have never seen. An undermining of one pillar of American tradition after another. Threat after threat against the sanctity of the Constitution. Attempt after attempt to delegitimize election results. Dog whistle after dog whistle to racists and white supremacists. Use of the bully pulpit to float conspiracy theories. Misuse and debasement of the judiciary. The enthronement of insults and vulgarity as a regular feature of public discourse. People could write books about each one of these subversions. They are and they will. Imagine the waves of ink that will follow this man's presidency. The waves have already begun crashing ashore. Meanwhile, the result of all his duplicity can only be institutional decay, a weakening of the one country that can stand in the way of the agenda of Vladimir Putin, the world's principal enemy of constitutional democracy. Now look at what the American would-be Mussolini has delivered on the global stage. His foreign policy has been even more dramatically pro-Putin. In fact, it's been transparently pro-Putin. Aside from removing America from the moral high ground, aside from never saying a nasty word about the KGB assassin who rules the Kremlin, DJT has openly made it his business to create rifts in the world order. You could make a list of his transgressions in this regard. I will cite just one glaring example. In July of 2018, when the President of the United States stood beside the KGB man in Helsinki, rather than confirm the finding by the entire American intelligence community to the effect that Russia waged cyber war on the United States before, during, and after the 2016 election, this man instead acquiesced to the KGB man's denial. That was a political obscenity committed in full view in broad daylight. Who could fail to ask after such an event? Is DJT beholden to Putin? Is he thus effectively an appeaser on steroids? It's an argument as easy to make as the one that brands the president a pathological liar because the facts so overwhelmingly support the argument. I said I would return to the Crimea and discuss it within a particular context. We have arrived at that context. Where has the current president of the United States stood on the issue of Crimea? The issue which provides us with the most direct parallel to the shame of Munich in 1938? His silent, dormant, and thus effectively collaborative posture provides the answer. At the Helsinki summit, he conspicuously failed to condemn the illegal annexation of Crimea. Go back a little further in time for additional evidence. The Republican convention in the summer of 2016. The policy platform of the GOP was changed at the behest of the party's nominee for president. It was changed at the 11th hour to weaken support for American assistance to Ukraine in its fight against Russian sabotage of its sovereignty. These are nothing less than smoking gun acts of appeasement. We can call them appeasements at the very least. To invoke the president's own habit of language, we can go further and say that many people see the acts as those of a suborned stooge, 
beholden either in some financial way to the oligarchs of Russia or compromised in some obscene way by video evidence in a Kremlin vault. Thus is the President of the United States, more than possibly, a bought and paid for agent in place. What would Winston Churchill do if he were alive today? What if he were watching all this from his seat in the House of Commons? I suspect knowing him as I think I know him, believing in him as he deserves to be believed in, he would do what no other person of political stature anywhere in the world has yet done. In the case of Vladimir Putin, Churchill would eloquently recite damning facts and relentlessly draw inevitable conclusions. As simple as that. He would demand to know of world leaders whether or not they recall the story of Munich, 1938, and whether they understand the lesson of Munich, 1938. In terms of world reaction, what is Russia's takeover of Crimea if not a near-perfect reflection of Nazi Germany's annexation of the Sudetenland? Churchill would point out that the democracies commit the same mistake over and over again. They fail to make pariahs of aggressors. Invite Putin to a seat at the G7? Churchill would say that we should instead be expelling him from the G20. We should instead be talking about disinviting him from the United Nations. Turn him into a leper. You don't make nice with killers and invaders. First you have nothing to do with them, and then you do your utmost to remove the ground from under them. In the case of the current American president, I suspect Churchill would take a similar course of action. Here I might be dreaming in technicolor, but bear with me. At the risk of upsetting diplomatic nicety, Churchill would call for an emergency halt to diplomatic nicety. He would address himself directly to the American people, protocol be damned, while reminding them that his mother was American. He would tell them what they already know, but which no one of prominence cares to say aloud. He would tell them that, surely, a loose cannon in the Oval Office cannot be in the best interests of either their country or peace in the world. He would tell them that, surely, if a malignant narcissist should ever take on the mantle of the highest office in America, such an event could only be regarded as a fleeting aberration in the history of the Great Republic. He would tell them that such a circumstance would constitute a perfect storm battering at the walls of American democracy and that it would be best to wait it out and meanwhile shun the man responsible to the extent possible. He would tell them that they are going through hell, but that they should keep going. Think of how refreshing such a speech would be, especially if variations of it were delivered on every occasion when the loose cannon erupted with another burst of treason to American tradition. Principled leadership and damn the torpedoes. We are living through a time when principled leadership does not exist at the highest levels of world governance. That is why we desperately need a Churchill, because he embodied fundamental values and he had the courage to implement them, no matter the obstacle or the protocol. Despite all the fears that I have articulated, I believe the future will clean up the mess of the present. The hell will be in the rearview mirror and will take great consolation from history's judgment. I have no doubt that the momentum of the American idea, though it can be stalled, cannot be stopped. A person can be diagnosed with cancer, fear for his life. 
but he can then come through treatment to complete remission. The country that produced Washington, Jefferson, Lincoln, two Roosevelts, and over 300 Nobel Prize winners will not be permanently injured by a man who will be best remembered for his mendacity, unless that aspect of his legacy is overshadowed by his sheer uncouthness. A hundred years from now, the name spelled T-R-U-M-P will most likely act as a synonym for quizzling. As for Winston Churchill, his name, despite the efforts of revisionists, who are starting to be active, but that's another story. Churchill's name will command the same respect it enjoys today, at least among those who study history. Problem is, fewer and fewer students are reading history. In some respects, the problem is alarming. Before I began writing Churchill at Munich, by chance I fell into conversation with a recently graduated high school student about what he knew and didn't know about the Second World War. I asked the young fellow if he happened to know the name of the man who was Prime Minister of Britain during the war. The student professed not to know. That would not have been so frightening to me, except for the fact that this young fellow had graduated from a school named Sir Winston Churchill High. I can't say that's the only reason why it occurred to me to write a novel featuring Churchill as a major character. The principal motivation for the book came from my lifelong admiration for the man and my certainty that if he had only become prime minister a couple of years before he actually did, then there would have been no war at all. Seventy million lives would have been saved. He would have gone to Munich in 1938 in place of Neville Chamberlain. He would not have appeased Adolf Hitler. He would have explicitly recognized the choice between war and dishonor, and he would have risked war. And by risking war, he would have avoided war, because Hitler's generals and the aristocratic Prussian old guard were not yet Hitler's poodles. They only became his poodles after Hitler's tremendous victory at Munich. My novel is one of alternate history does make Churchill Prime Minister before Munich. All of subsequent history is therefore altered. I invite you, should you do me the honor of reading the novel, to judge the plausibility of what I have imagined for yourselves. On that note, thank you very much for your attention. Well, that is today's episode of the Code St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service. If you're listening at 2 p.m. on our phone line, we have another special item for you. Have a great day.